So Money Episode 762, Christina Alger, author of The Banker's Wife. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Ever wonder what life is really like for socialites and financiers? Is it really as glamorous as it looks or as sinister as the media might have you believe? Our next guest gives us a glimpse into the lives of New York socialites and helps us draw our own conclusions. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today is Christina Alger. She's a celebrated fiction author who just released her third book, The Banker's Wife. And I'm telling you, it is incredible. I don't have a lot of time to read fiction these days. And this is sitting next to me at my bedside table. I read a few pages every night and I'm, I'm just obsessed. It is a work of fiction, but I really think that it shows life under the surface of New York City's quote-unquote elite. And so where did Christina draw her inspiration? She's a former Goldman Sachs analyst and a former Manhattan corporate attorney. She grew up in New York City, went to some of the best schools in the country. She sadly lost her father, who was a well-known finance executive during the 9-11 terrorist attack. And she talks about that very candidly. She also dives deep into the world of fiction writing, how to get a book published, how to develop characters, and why Banker's Wife is catching the attention of so many critics. It's actually becoming a TV series. Christina Alger is going places, and so I'm really excited that she made a quick stop here on So Money. Here we go. Here's the lovely Christina Alger. Christina Alger, welcome to So Money. It's great to finally connect with you. I've been stalking you on Instagram and online. (laughs) I feel like I know you, but obviously I don't, but I do too. So it's a pleasure to be here. It's, it's really, the pleasure is all mine. Really excited. And congratulations on your latest book, The Banker's Wife. It is being heralded as an international thriller uh, of the first order right there on the cover of the book. And you've been doing a ton of um, engagements this summer talking about the book that you've been profiled everywhere. And um, so we're really privileged to have you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this is your third book, your third baby, third literary yeah, baby. Third literary baby. Yeah, not including my human babies. Right, mom of <laughs> two. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about how you arrived at this particular story. I was telling you earlier, you know, I don't often talk to interview fiction authors, but I felt like this was not only a book that I wanted to read, and I don't read, I don't get a chance to read a lot of uh, fiction books in my years, but it is so much about what we talk about on this show, yeah. which is money and finance. So tell us how you arrived at it. So I, um, I think like you probably, I actually find finance um, and financial news really fascinating. <laughs> so I've always been a financial news junkie. Um, and I, I became really interested in, I've been interested in offshore banking for a long time, but particularly when the Panama paper case, um, broke, I just, I couldn't stop reading about it. I was so amazed by how much money was being held offshore and the sort of ram- the political and economic ramifications of it. And so I just thought like, I, I, I just kept 
um, doing, you know, what ultimately became the foundational research for this book. But I kept thinking this is, you know, it's at one, it's so glamorous and corrupt and fascinating. And I just couldn't stop reading about it. So I, that was the kind of spark. Um, so I knew I wanted to write a novel that was set in this sort of offshore banking world. Um, and then the, the, the main character, one of the main, there are two female protagonists, Uh, Marina is a journalist who was a character in my first novel, The Darlings. And I just thought she was sort of the perfect heroine for this because I think journalists have been doing some really incredible work for the last few years, particularly in the face of a lot of um, criticism. And so I, I really wanted there to be sort of a strong female journalist as the protagonist. That's what I love, too, about the book, although I haven't read it yet. But what I understand is that you have these two female protagonists. And so in this world of finance, which is predominantly male driven, here's a book and a story that follows these two women and how they deal with, uh, well, the mystery unfolds. But um, I thought that was also very timely, you know, given um, what we're experiencing in the the real world with, uh, with regards to the rise of women. Absolutely. I, I was, it was really, you know, it's finance is very male dominated and thrillers are really male dominated. And so, you know, I think there's sort of always been two camps of thrillers, uh, the sort of the traditional thrillers that, you know, have James Bond and Jack Reacher and these kind of very heroic guys. And then the kind of more, more recently, there's been a whole, um, the market's sort of been flooded by these psychological thrillers that feature kind of unreliable female protagonists who are, you know, typically, um, kind of psychopath, they're psychopaths or they're being manipulated or they're, you know, so I just really felt like it was time to have some strong women in thriller writing. So it was kind of important for me to, to do that. This is a big question. I'm sure you get it a lot, but because I don't often get to talk, get the opportunity to talk to fiction writers, I'm curious, what is your process for character development and, finishing a book. I mean, I know, I think with non, I'm a nonfiction writer. So I know like if I get a book deal, I first present a proposal and then I write it. (laughs) But I understand in your world, it's much different. You have to write the novel and then try to sell it, which sounds super scary to me. Well, I actually, so I find that actually less scary than what I'm doing now, which is I actually, after the banker's wife, I sold a two book deal to my editor. So based on a very very rough outline. So I actually think it's sort of terrifying to sell something you haven't written yet. Um, but congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, but you know, fiction is, um, it's, it's, um, I, it's funny. I, I go back and forth on what the right way to go about it is in terms of selling in advance, but I think fiction, a lot of writers find that they create an outline and then it just doesn't come together. It falls flat and you kind of have to have that, you know, really passionate feeling about it and about your characters. And so I think, um, we're given a little bit more leeway than nonfiction writers about stirring from our outlines. Um, so, but back to maybe, you know, how much of your real life inspired this book? So I, I mean, I have a background in finance. I worked in finance and sort of as a lawyer and a financial analyst, uh, for my whole twenties, um, up until my early thirties. And so, I mean, I, I drew on my sort of professional background and then I also, um, I, I'm very careful about setting my books in locations that I feel really comfortable in. So we have family that live in Geneva. So I felt like Geneva was somewhere that I was comfortable enough setting a book. Um, and, but you know, I mean, 
beyond that, um, I, I really relied on sort of, you know, my research abilities because offshore banking is a really dark, mysterious world. And I've certainly never set up an offshore bank account myself. So, um, I had to kind of imagine a lot of it, but, um, but that part was really fun. I mean, I, I, I love doing research like that. So it was a joy. Why leave finance to write? I mean, it sounds like I love the life you're leading now. I mean, I, I can't even imagine something <laughs> better or more exciting than to be able to write your, your stories and have them featured and be successful as a writer. It's so hard and competitive. And, um, I think that's, yes, it is hard and competitive. Um, you know, it's, I actually, so I left my law firm. Um, I was practicing as a lawyer and I was working very hard, um, during the, I, I came out of law school in 2007 and it was, you know, went right into the financial crisis and I was doing M and A and bankruptcy, so there was no shortage of work for me. Um, but I was exhausted and felt sort of, I, I think I just needed a creative outlet. So I started writing the darlings, which was my first book while I was working. And we came to a point where I, you know, I went, we went to market with it and there was a big auction over it. And, um, then, um, HBO took, uh, bought the film rights and wanted me to write the screenplay. And it just, it was one of those opportunities where I felt like if I didn't try this, I would never, I would regret it for the rest of my life. So I left my law firm and I sort of told myself, okay, we're going to do this for a year. And if it doesn't work out, I will go back. Um, and that was, you know, um, I guess almost seven years ago and I'm still doing it. So, um, I was very lucky that I sort of fell into, um, you know, the position that I did, but, um, it was definitely a, a financial, financial risk and continues to be one, but it's exciting at the same time. Uh, you know, I think you should give yourself more credit. I mean, there's definitely some luck to becoming a successful writer and having HBO, you know, want to take you on. But if anyone were to read, you know, the your background, and it's obviously that you're a hard worker, you're well-educated, you're, um, you know, you went to Harvard, and then before that, even you were at Chapin. And I think, what do you think it is about your personality? Do you feel like you could, I mean, I know no one wants to brag about themselves, but I feel like <laughs> you are in, you are someone who rises to the occasion, you know, like you are someone who's hardworking and whether it's writing a novel or, uh, something else, another project, like you're going to put your heart and soul into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I feel like there's almost no better training for, I mean, being a writer, I, I think you really have to see it like a business and a lot of writers don't, um, you know, I, I see it, I see this as a business. I mean, I, I feel like I'm an artist, but I'm also a business person. And so I, you know, I meet my deadlines. I work, you know, pretty in a very disciplined way. Um, and I also, I, I'm very, I, I think I'm pretty receptive to criticism. Um, you know, when you work in a law firm, if your partner, if you're getting feedback that you're not doing it right, you know, you change it and you kind of swallow your ego. And I think, um, that sort of discipline has served me well. Um, so, you know, I feel like with each book I'm, I, I do a lot of, um, you know, I, I talk to my editor, I, I read all my reviews. I try and, I try and get better every time. So I feel lucky that the sort of corporate world, I think gives you a pretty thick skin and a good sense of discipline. And I've tried to apply that to this more creative field that I'm in now. 
Take us back to your upbringing. I read there was a huge profile of you in uh, the New York Times when uh, your book, The Darlings, uh, launched. I think that was around 2012. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think, um, yeah, that is, I, I still haven't decided if that was a good profile or not, but I, um, I, so I grew up in New York. I, my dad, um, ran a mutual fund. Um, I, you know, I had a very, um, privileged upbringing in many ways. I mean, I went to great schools. Um, but you know, my parents, um, my, my father was a self-made, person. And my mother is, uh, she grew up in Cuba and she came here with nothing when she was 13 and she went into finance as well. And so they were both, my parents were both extremely hardworking. They really valued education. And I feel really lucky that they sort of, um, forced me (laughs) to, um, hold myself to a pretty high standard academically. And then they also really expected me to work very hard. So I, you know, I, I don't feel like, um, they let me coast in any way. Um, and I, you know, that's, that's sort of the best of both worlds, I think. So I was very fortunate. If you had told them when you were say 16, that you wanted to become a novelist, would, no. well, I'm just, I feel no. like our parents might've been similar in that sense. Like I had to go, I studied finance because that was, yeah, of there course. was a good ROI yeah. there. Um, yeah, no, that's, I mean, I told my dad I wanted to be a veterinarian when I was four and I still remember him looking me in the eye and saying, everyone wants to be a veterinarian and they don't make a lot of money. And <laughs> my mom was horrified. And she was like, why would you say talk. that? Um, but no, I mean, no, I was working for my dad's firm, you know, when I was 14, he was making me run coffee for traders on his floor. So I, um, being a novelist was not something that I ever even, honestly conceived of as I just, it didn't occur to me that people sort of actually did that, um, for a living. But so no, I went to Goldman out of, um, college sort of assuming that, you know, I was expected to, um, ultimately go into the family business and it, you know, it, it, finance was my dad's passion. It's not mine. Um, but I'm, I'm so glad that I have the training that I do, but, um, I definitely felt, a lot of pressure from my parents to sort of immediately go into a hiring profession. So that's what I did. With regards to finance, what was the, what was your, what would you say was the big point of view or perspective that you felt like your family really wanted to pass down to you as far as how they embraced their wealth or how they made their money or how they thought about money? Um, one of our sponsors for this podcast is Chase Slate, and they have done extensive studies into um, parents and their conversations about money with their yeah. kids. And they found that over half of them have had money conversations, like direct money conversations with their kids. Do you remember? Oh, God, yeah. Conversations oh my- like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, my parents interestingly came from completely different backgrounds, but ended up in the same place. So, my father grew up in a very wealthy family. Um, or what sort of he thought was a very wealthy family. Um, his parents died when he was very young and they sort of realized, he realized once his father had passed away that they actually had run through all their money and they had no money. Um, so he was raised in a very privileged way, but without the sort of safety net to save him and had to, he ended up going to work for his brother on wall street, um, right out of college because it was the only job he could get. And he really had to work for everything he had. Um, my mother, you know, 
came here with nothing and sort of knew from the go she was going to have to work for everything. So, but I think, you know, both of them came to the same place, which is that they had both been, they both had nothing in their life and they had both had a lot in their life. And they, I think both because of that experience felt that, you know, money can change very quickly. (laughs) Your financial situation can change very quickly. And so they sort of beat it into me that you live beneath your means in every possible way you can. And you kind of don't ever, you know, money is not happiness is, you know, my mom always says their happiest times were together was when, you know, I was little and my dad hadn't made as much money as he did later in his life. So, um, there was a real emphasis on that in our family. And, and I think my, you know, my dad, he was almost a zealot about teaching me how to manage my own money from a young age. I think he felt very strongly that girls in particular weren't given enough kind of home economic, um, lessons. And so he actually had this whole idea that he wanted to push it into my school to come in and teach us about finance. But he was, um, ahead of his time. (laughs) He was, I know he really was. Oh my God. I was so mortified by it at the time. I was like, please dad, don't do that. It's so embarrassing. No one's going to want to do it, but I'm really grateful because my dad died when I was 21 and you know, I was already managing my own money in a very small way, but he had had me start doing that in high school. And thank God he did because, you know, I really had to learn quickly how to be a grown up in short order. So I'm grateful to him for that. But we're doing that with Emma. My daughter's five and my husband works in finance. And so we're, my husband is already doing that too. (laughs) So we're doing our best with our own kids. Um, I understand that your father passed away on 9-11. He was in the Twin Towers and you you mentioned you were only 21. Um, How that's I can't even imagine um, what that was like. And uh, it's probably not something you like to talk about, but um, I figured. I I, I do talk about it though. And I um, thank you for saying that. No, it was, I mean, it was obviously a horrific and grief filled time for our family. Um, And, you know, it it was, um, it really changed the course of my life. Um, He was, you know, I was very close with my father. He was, you know, comparatively quite young. He was in his fifties when he died and obviously it was very unexpected. Um, but you know, I feel like, um, not that there's like ever a silver lining to losing a parent at a young age, but I do feel like my dad prepared me exceptionally well for, you know, being on my own because my father had lost his parents at such a young age. He was, gave me a lot of tools, um, which at the time I probably resented, but I, feel like in retrospect, I'm grateful that he sort of beat this work ethic into me because I certainly needed it after he passed away. What is the one thing, the most important thing that you feel like he taught you that you still, um, that is still very much part of how you run your life today? And you can almost hear him telling you this, like as if he were, you know, whispering it in your ear. Um, Well, there are a couple things. I think one is that my father was extremely passionate about his work he only ever spoke about his work positively around the house. And I remember speaking to him about that later in life, um, you know, when I was in college and saying, you know, you were always so positive. Even my father worked extremely long hours and, but he was always so happy. And I remember saying to him, like, you were always so happy. You always, you know, felt so enthusiastic about your job, even, you know, when things weren't going well. And he said, you know, it was really important for me to teach you that work was fun and that you should be passionate about what you do, because if you're not, you won't be successful. 
And so he was very cognizant of making me feel like work was fun and something I should be excited to do. And I should follow my heart, you know, as sort of cheesy as that sounds, but do something that I really love because you do end up, you know, especially in New York, you end up working, you're probably at the office more than you are at home. So, um, so I, you know, I, I really respect him for that. And I've also found that, you know, I, I love what I do, so it doesn't feel like work. And my husband and I both try and, you know, even if we've had a bad day, not ever sort of, you know, carp about work at home in front of our kids because we want them to feel like work is something that's filled with joy and passion. And, um, you know, that's something we really want to sort of cultivate in our house. Um, and the other thing that I loved about my father was he literally woke up every day feeling like every day was a new day. You don't look back. Um, you don't sort of revisit old mistakes, and he was just an immensely positive person. And so I, I still remember he used to wake me up screaming carpe diem, which drove me insane. But I feel like I, that was just sort of who he was. And so, um, you know, I try and remember that when I'm, you know, having trouble rebounding from, you know, some some loss or some frustration at work. What you said about your parents being optimistic and happy and you guys, you and your husband showing the, the good side of work to your children, at least. There have been studies actually that prove because, you know, a lot of times, especially working moms, they feel guilty that oh, I'm not home and how my, how's it going to impact my kids relationship with me? And they're going to feel like I'm abandoning them. And seriously, I mean, there are these thoughts, right? Oh, and yeah. Yeah, but, but to um, the good news is that these studies have shown that parents, particularly mothers who exhibit satisfaction and happiness and optimism around their work and enthusiasm, even if they are out of the house, like 10 hours a day, that leaves such a positive impact on their children. And they don't feel as if mom wasn't around, right? They feel like mom was doing something that was important to her and to us. And it was this happy thing. And, and that's what sticks. And so, um, just wanted to add that to what yeah, you Yeah, no, I sure. I mean, said. I sure hope so. That's what we, you know, I spoke at Barnes and Noble last night and we brought my, both my kids, even though it was way past their bedtime, but we did it because we wanted my daughter in particular to see, you know, that there were, you know, more than a hundred people there to listen to me speak. And, you know, what I do is fun and exciting. And, you know, she was really proud of me. She was running around like greeting everybody. And, you know, so I think, um, I, I really hope that she sees it and in some way it sort of resonates with her and she feels like that, you know, down the road, she can, you know, do whatever she wants to do with her life. And, um, so, you know, and, and hopefully it, it offsets the time I spend away from her. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be creating some incredible memories and, uh, uh, hey, you know what? It's okay. It's summer. They can miss their bedtime. Exactly. Totally. Well, yeah. She School's out. 30, so <laughs> that was probably a little aggressive, but, um, but yeah, she had a great time. She loves a good party. You live in New York City. I think uh, Upper East Side, uh, there is yep. so much wealth in this town, and I live in Brooklyn, and there's a lot, a lot of wealth here too, but I think, you know, the Upper East Side is one of the most expensive zip codes in the world, and I would love to hear a little bit about the culture up there, you know, and how to kind of stick to your kind of to your morals and to have like, you know, not be influenced. And I feel like there's a lot of pressure. It, there's a lot of pressure everywhere, right? To keep up with the Joneses. How do you maintain your, um, your sense of personal value and self when you're around so much excess? Yeah. 
So, you know, it's so interesting. This came up last night at this talk that I did. I was in conversation with Lee Child, who's a writer I just admire and revere. But it was so funny. Someone asked me that about raising kids in New York City. And he, and Lee said, um, oh, I think New York is the best place in the world to raise kids because there's always someone who has more money. So you can't compete. There's no point. There's no, you know, and he was sort of right. It's sort of freeing in a sense that like, you just, there will always be someone in the room with more. And, um, you know, I think what I try and remember is that one of the joys of raising kids here is that while there is an immense amount of wealth, there's also, um, you know, it's a very diverse city and we're all sort of squished in together. And my kids kind of have to, you know, not to say that living in the suburbs isn't, you know, it's, it's the right choice for a lot of people. But I think for us, we feel like, you know, we're an inter, we're multi-faith, we're multi-ethnic family. And, you know, we like that our kids kind of have to walk down the street and see people from all different walks of life and interact with all different kinds of people. And our kids' school is very diverse in terms of both sort of culturally and ethnically, but also socioeconomically. Um, so we feel really privileged by that. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a challenge. I mean, you know, it's, um, I think anywhere there's wealth, there's, you know, that potential for, you know, kids to kind of lose sight of what, what's real and what's not. So you have to work at it. I think one of the (laughs) hardest questions, I don't think I have a good answer yet for this, but it's like, what do you do when your kid asks you, how much money do you make? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, do you know Ron Lieber? I like yes, I went yes. to a lecture. Yeah, so I I went to a lecture where he talked about this specific question, and it was a lecture on the Upper East Side, and it was really interesting to watch people sort of react to it because there was a lot of very wealthy people in the room. Um, he he his perspective, and I I kind of agree with it, is um, just to be you know, honest as you feel is appropriate for however old your child is, but that, you know, we not to, you know, that we, we tend to underestimate kids and, and honestly, this generation is like, there's so much information available online. Um, you know, which when we were growing up, you know, you couldn't like Google how much your house cost, but now you can. So he was, he's a big proponent of transparency and, um, trying to put things in a perspective that they can understand. Um, so, you know, I, it's a really tough question though. And I, I have not yet figured out how to deal with it. Um, I think, you know, because of the way my parents grew up and, you know, I, the way they raised me, my parents were just constantly reminding me how privileged I was. Um, and, you know, I find myself doing that with my daughter and I feel a little bit guilty because, you know, she's five and she doesn't necessarily have the world experience. You know, she doesn't have the frame of reference that I do. So I try and not be on her when she's whining about something. But, um, you know, I think it's um, I think kids should know that they're, you know, they they're very, very fortunate compared, you know, mm-hmm. to other people in this country and other people in the world generally. And. Um, you know, I, I think the best thing to do is be honest about that. 
and to travel and, you know, get yes, out. get outside of your bubble. I think that's really important. And, um, Ron Lieber is a, has been on this podcast and he's the author of the opposite of spoil. Thanks for mentioning him because I think he's a great resource for anyone looking to get some advice around the, the sticky questions that kids can oh, ask. Yeah. But I've read his books many times. Yeah. And, and so there's no like cookie cutter answer, but I do think that reminding ourselves that kids are smarter than we think sometimes that the information is already out there to some extent. So whether, and, and, but I think most importantly, not to make them feel, uh, bad or awkward or that, right. that their, their question exactly. is inappropriate, like that stings. Exactly. And that's the sort of experience that will later when they look back on their life and try to figure out why do I have such a weird relationship with money? Totally. My parents never let me ask any questions about it. Yeah, we, you know, it's funny because I just grew up in a house. My dad was a money manager. So we talked about money all the time. And, you know, I, and I talked to some of my friends and they never spoke to their parents about money ever, ever. And I, I find that sort of baffling and, and a little bit sad because I think that, that, you know, that does create issues down the road. So no, I mean, I, I'm a huge believer in transparency with kids in sort of as age appropriate a way as you can. Christina, it's been so great to hear your voice. I've been seeing you everywhere and now I get to hear your voice and, um, you are obviously uh, brilliant. And I think what I'm, I'm learning, I, I learned something new in this conversation is that you are a financial badass and oh, thank you. your book, <laughs> so and it's bad. no wonder that your book really gives cre- you know, credence to women in the world of finance. And I can't wait to dive in. The Banker's Wife just came out in July and uh, was it in, in People Magazine, like one of favorite, one of the, their favorite books and it was in, yeah, the post said it was a, I, it's been in a few places as a must read. So I'm really grateful for that. So thank you so much. And I really hope you enjoy it. And it's also now in the Stone Harbor bookstore in New Jersey. Oh, cool. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> I encouraged the book owner to, to order it and she was intrigued. I know. Thank you. That's awesome. That's, that's what I like to hear. My pleasure. Good luck. And uh, I'll, I'll be seeing you around. Okay, great. Thank you so much. To learn more about Christina, check out her site, christinaalger.com, or you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Christina Alger. The book, again, is called The Banker's Wife, and it's available everywhere books are sold. If you have any questions about today's episode or want to download the transcript, the audio, head over to somoneypodcast.com as always. And if you want to send me a question, you can do that at somoneypodcast.com or on Instagram, Follow me there and send me a direct message. Or sometimes I just ask you uh, in my stories for your questions. You can directly input it there and I usually answer on the go. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money.